0: in the church uh, be carried out in various roles and in particular we saw fivefold uh, ministry roles in Ephesians 4 uh, 11 in particular um, we also have seen that one of the areas where the local body of believers is to be uh, governed and led is through the, the function of elders uh, as they along with the the pastor in that role, shepherd the flock of God, uh, providing protection, guidance, instruction, and also uh, example. Um, The pastor who also serves uh, as an elder uh, is considered, and this is a a term that has been coined, uh, the first uh, among equals. Uh, And you can see uh, the ministry of the elders uh, and their uh, expectations and qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, while the role of the elder and the pastor uh, is limited to believing spiritually mature and gifted men, the question could be, and is rightly asked, uh, what about the place of believing women within ministry, and in particular within the local body of believers or within the church? To, answer, to try to answer that question I, I, at the outset, I want us to turn to the scriptures uh, for guidance and to see if there are boundaries Uh, that the Lord has given us. Let me just say that this message today and our study today uh, in the way that I am presenting it is by no means comprehensive. So I am not attempting to answer every question or every situation or scenario that may arise within the local body of, of believers so it's by no means comprehensive in scope. Um, in fact, where if I land this message where my notes land today, you're probably gonna have more questions than answers. But you know that's okay. Because I think we, as believing people, need to continually study God's word together and consider how it applies to each of us individually and collectively as the body of Christ. Would you pray with me? Because I think that's a good place for us to begin. Let's pray. Father, in these few moments that we share together in your word, I pray that you will guide and direct my words and thoughts as I communicate out this message and what I have learned in in this uh, week and even previous weeks leading up to this message. I know, Father, that this may not answer every question that might be raised by our considerations of your word, but Lord, we do pray for understanding and insight and continual understanding and application of your word. And so, Father, uh, I give myself to you as the one bringing this message that you might speak through me according to your word and that you'll give to me and to all who are in the hearing of this message ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us. And Lord, we will give you thanks and praise for it's in Jesus' name that and for his glory that we ask these things. Amen. I think a... a, a good place to begin in light of this uh, topic is to understand and recognize, and I I think that the New Testament will bear this out, that that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ raised the status and role of women uh, during his public ministry. Cultures had corrupted the view of women their value, their worth, the role that they were to have in society. And in many contexts, they are seen as second class, having little to no rights, and were but mere property uh, of their husbands. This seems to be true of all pagan cultures, that, 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 Prevalence seems to dominate the thinking of the culture. Sadly, though, this same kind of idea was also present in Judaism. One of the prayers that Jewish men would pray on a regular basis was this. I thank you, Lord, that I am born a Jew and not a Gentile, I thank you that I was born a man and not a woman. Having said that, a brief survey of the life of Christ reveals that Jesus himself corrected the corruption that had become embedded in Judaism and in the cultures of his day, and really in the cultures of the world. And I think that he did this in the best possible way because he did it by way of example. The first place that my mind went in, in, in sharing this with you this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And the entire chapter, verses 1 through 40, is an account of Jesus with a woman at the well. You're familiar with the account, so I'm not going to take the time to, to go through all the specific details of that. I encourage you to, to read that portion uh, when you have opportunity. But it's interesting that, that Jesus comes to this well uh, in the middle of the day. He's, he's weary from his journey, and he engages her in conversation. That in itself was considered taboo in that day. You don't talk to women in public, uh, especially without a husband present. And you as a man never approach a woman to to speak with her. That's just out of line, culturally. But you see, Jesus asks her for a drink, and that that provides him an opportunity to have this conversation and engage her with a, a greater need that was in her life than just water and coming to this well to water her flocks, if she had any, or to just water for herself. He offered her living water, which was himself. That would satisfy her soul and provide her a right relationship with God. After all, the whole purpose of Jesus coming was to save sinners. And it's obvious in the context that comes out in this conversation that this woman had some sin in her life. But Jesus offers her forgiveness and grace The amazing thing is that that she, as you know, leaves her water pot and goes into the town and starts to say, hey, hey, I think I found the Messiah, a guy who told me everything about myself, and maybe she added to that, though our text doesn't tell us, that he received me, he talked with me, he told me about living water, and guess what? The town came out and engaged Jesus in conversation. And notice what they say in verse 42. They said to the woman, this woman at the well, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. Though that was probably a factor. Her giving testimony to Christ probably brought some people at least to an understanding that Messiah had come. And notice this. They say, For we have heard him for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see how Christ transformed this woman's life as she encountered him, the living Christ, and she went in turn and gave her testimony, and others came to faith in Christ? unheard of in that culture. See, we don't don't fully grasp that. For her to go into that city and men and women alike listening to her and coming out and hearing Jesus and getting saved. Verse 29 tells us specifically that she spoke of him. She pointed others uh, to Christ. You also have another example uh, by the life of Christ found in Luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42. And Jesus here comes to a particular village and he goes into the home of of these two sisters known by the name of Mary uh, and Martha. And we know that uh, there was some tension in that household because Mary, as we're told here, verse 39, had, who was Martha's sister, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She was taking the place of a disciple, sitting at the feet of the master or the rabbi, and she's listening uh, to Jesus. Um, Martha doesn't like that because, you know, they're invited him over for dinner and she's stuck in the kitchen, you know, with all the preparations. And so she comes out and chastises the Lord, <laughs> surprisingly. And don't you care that my sister's out here just sort of listening to your teaching and you're, she's not helping me? But notice how the Lord doesn't say, you know, Mary, we we've got to cut this conversation short. Go in the kitchen and fi- fix our dinner. No, he responded by saying, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about a lot of things. Really, there's only one thing that's necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, and that will not be taken away from her. The good part was sitting at the feet of Jesus and being taught by him, which says that that women can receive and be taught the word of God from Christ himself. being directly taught by the rabbi, by the Lord himself. That was the good part. It's kind of interesting. Back when Lifeway had a store here in town, it, it, it struck me as I went through the one section where they had material for Sunday School Bible study and things like that that there were all these women's studies and I was amazed at the the subject matter of these studies books of the Bible the attributes of God and on and on the list goes and it was like wow and I thought where's the men's section And lo and behold, there was very little. And I scratched my head and I thought to myself, now wait a minute. Don't men need to be taught the word of God as well? That's something for you to to ask yourself the question. Why is it that men can't come together and open up the Bible and study it? I understand the, 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 the manly thing is to do, to do, to do, to do. But don't we need to also be taught the Word of God and come together around the Word of God? Mary was being commended for doing something that was culturally not acceptable, and yet he commended it. But what about in our culture today where it's reversed? Where the kind of the concept is that, well, Bible study is for women. That's a women's role and job. Men, we need to be real, realize that God calls us to know and handle His Word as believing men. Kind of interesting. Luke uh, mentions Mary Magdalene uh, in Luke eight, two and three. She was healed of demon spirits. And in Luke's Gospel, if you turn back a couple of pages luke eight we're told about Mary Magdalene, but we're also told about some other women as well uh in Luke chapter eight, you see these uh these words it's uh, let's read verse one, I guess for the context uh, at Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. And also, now notice this, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom he he cast seven demons and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who had provided for them out of their means. Did you catch that? That these were women who, for whatever reason, had means and financially supported Jesus and his disciples in their ministry. After all, how do you travel around around and be an itinerant preacher with 12 helpers and provide yourself with food unless it's given to you or you purchase it. And these women were financially contributing to uh, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and were used in that significant way. If you go back to... uh, John's Gospel, and again, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery in the very act. He in his compassion and graciousness says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and they're gone. And she is left alone with Jesus. And what does he say? Does no one condemn you? And she looked around and said, there's nobody here to condemn me. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, if they would have followed strictly the law, she, along with whoever she was with, should have been stoned. But you see, the Lord shows grace. And he's able to restore and to forgive and to heal regardless of what sin might be in a person's heart and life. And and I see in that woman transformation, because not only does he give her forgiveness, go and sin no more, excuse me, neither do I condemn you, but also transformation, go and sin no more. We need to make sure that when we present the gospel, we're not only offering forgiveness, but we also call people to sanctification in following Christ, that their lives are transformed by his gracious and saving work. Here's an interesting thing. That the gospel, as you know, is for men and women alike. Would you agree? Is the gospel only for Jewish people? No, it's true for Jew and Gentile alike. Does it matter what your social status might be? as to whether or not you can take advantage, if you would, if I could put it in those terms of the gospel. Oh, In fact, if you look at Galatians chapter three with me, verses 26 through 29, we read these words. Galatians chapter three, verses 26 to 29. And Paul makes this declaration. It's a part of a greater sentence, but verse 26 picks up. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. How does one become a child of God? According to this text, it's by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done in his death, burial, and resurrection for you and for me verse 27 says, "For as many of you as who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now notice this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And what Paul is saying in that context is that the gospel is universal to everyone. And anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ can be saved. Now, the reason why I I bring that up is because salvation in Christ, with all the blessings that that entails, is equally available to all. However, be careful that you don't use a verse such as this to say that it erases the distinct roles that exist that God has ordained. I'm just going to leave that at, at that here at this point. One, more, one last thing in the life of Jesus. Um, did you notice that when Christ was crucified, who were the ones at the cross? The women. Now John was there for a brief moment with the mother of Jesus and was entrusted with the care of Jesus' mother. But they were at the cross, Matthew 27:55. They were at his burial site, Matthew 27:61. And who were the first ones to go there on Resurrection Sunday? Where were the men? You said it. They were behind closed, maybe locked doors, hiding. Why is that? Fear, yeah. But I find it significant that the first ones to, to hear, He is not here, He is risen, go and tell His disciples were given to women. In that day, women could not testify in a court of law and have any type of authority or standing. And yet, the angel, by the direction of the Lord, tells women, go and testify first and foremost that Jesus is no longer here, he's risen. Just as he said. And these women faithfully carried out and executed the command that they were given. And you know what? They were trying their best to convince the disciples that this was reality, that this was true, that he was alive, and it says. And they responded with saying, "This is utter nonsense." What about Pentecost? we call Pentecost the birthday of the church. When, when, when the Holy Spirit descended upon believers and birthed what is now the church, so that everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ by the same Holy Spirit is baptized or put into that same mystical body known as the body of Christ. That began on the day of Pentecost. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 2 with me, you will notice that when the Spirit of God came, the Spirit of God came upon all who were gathered. And I find it significant that they were all, as we're told in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The text doesn't tell you or me that it was just the apostles who spoke in tongues. It says that all who were there in that particular context when the Spirit of God descended upon them and gave them that divine enablement to speak, they spoke. And what did they speak? If you read the context further of Acts, they're speaking about the wonderful works of God. They're giving praise to God. When Peter is explaining this, because the the Jews that are there for this feast, this Jewish feast of Pentecost, are all stirred up and saying, what does this mean? Notice that he quotes from the prophet Joel, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. He goes back to the Old Testament. He doesn't offer his opinion. He doesn't give his necessarily interpretation. He goes back to scripture and says, this is what God has always promised. And what did he promise? Look at verse 17 of Acts 2 with me. And in the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants, in those days I will pour out of my spirit, and they will prophesy. Now, one of the ways that we can understand prophesying is receiving a direct revelation from God and then speaking what message God is given in that prophecy. Another way of understanding prophecy, which I think is just as equally valid, is the proclamation or the proclaiming of God's word. And notice that in this context, it was not limited to men speaking. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I will pour out my spirit on my male and female servants and they shall prophesy. They shall speak the word of God. And the reason why I'm I'm emphasizing this uh, is because where we land this sermon today may suggest that women should never speak. That would almost be a contradiction. In fact, it would be a contradiction if we held it in its strictest sense. What about the giftings of the Holy Spirit going forward? We read the passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 12, verses four through 13, talking about the variety of gifts, the same spirit. You'll notice that in that context, verses seven and eight, that there are speaking gifts. There are also sign gifts. There are what we would call supernatural gifts. And there's no indication in that listing of giftings that they were limited to just men, believing men. This is the Holy Spirit distributing gifts to all the saints as he determines and as he wills. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that that prophecy, speaking God's word, builds up the body of Christ You'll notice that in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, that Philip, who was a, started out as a deacon, became an evangelist, 20 years later shows up in Caesarea, and we're told that he had four virgin daughters, unmarried daughters, who were pure, who were prophetesses. Now when I read that, the only conclusion I can come to is that his daughters in some way were communicating the word of God. In what context we're not told. And I, and I said this one time in a, in a different context of teaching. I highly doubt that what Luke is recording there is saying that Philip did all the preaching and his four daughters stood in the background and said, amen, amen, amen. How does that look in our modern day? You want me to answer that, don't you? (laughs) I'm not going to. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was presented at the temple there was a woman by the name of Anna who was called a prophetess? Wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. Prophetess? I thought the prophet of the Old Testament who received the word of God and communicated it out was limited to just men, but yet the scripture says she was a prophetess. And she spoke something very significant concerning this child who was born, Jesus, and the Lord used her and affirmed her in that ministry and in that role. She was one who spent her time in the temple praying. And when she had opportunity to give witness to Christ, she verbally spoke something about Jesus to Mary and to, to Joseph. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, you see that there are several women who were named prophetesses whom God used. So in some manner, these believing women were used by God to communicate the word of God and his will to other believers it's also true that God used women significantly in terms of service. If you go to Acts chapter 9 verses 36 through 43, you will notice a woman by the name of Dorcas. Some translations have Tabitha. She was a person who was full of good works and Acts of Charity, verse 36. She passed away and she calls on Peter uh, and the apostles there. And, and they come and they pray over him and Dorcas is raised back to life. She used her giftings and her abilities to provide acts of charity and service on behalf of others. And was affirmed in that work that God had gifted and enabled her to do. She was so significant to the church that she wanted, they wanted her raised from the dead because there's a loss without her. And God chose in that context to bring her back. Here's another interesting thing. If you look at Acts chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 16, in the first 16 verses, Paul gives a listing of all kinds of individuals that were at the Church of Rome that received his greeting. And the first person that heads the list in Acts chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 is a woman by the name of Phoebe. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you might welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she might have need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The first thing that I want you to see here is that Paul calls her a servant. And did you know the word that he used there is diakonoi? Have you heard that word before? You have. It's the same word that's used for deacon. In other words, Phoebe was a deaconess in the church. The previous alliance church that I served had deaconesses who served within the church. She was significant. Some suggest that Phoebe was the one that was actually carrying the letter Paul wrote to the Romans to the Roman church as as sort of the envoy. Can you imagine the privilege of carrying the letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit known as Romans to the Roman church and delivering it? And apparently Phoebe had a significant role Maybe even beyond the church boundaries in that she was called a patron or a helper of many. It's interesting that that term patron uh, as it's used uh, in the culture of that day in Athens referred to one who was responsible to see to the welfare of resident aliens and to help those without civil rights. The Jews used this term to speak of someone who was wealthy, who helped the community. And it's interesting that Paul says, she's been a helper of many, she's been a patron of many, not only uh, others, but I my, my, myself. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through this, but read through this list, you will note that Paul notes eight other women in this context. Verse 6, Mary, who worked hard for you. Uh, Andronicus and Junia. Many believe that Junia, that's a husband and wife couple, that they were kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They're well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. Uh, Trophina and trophosa they were workers in the Lord. These, These were two sisters who worked together. There's Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Uh, There's also, in verse 15, Julia who is mentioned. 26 different names, 9 out of which are women, that Paul highlights that had a significant role in the body of Christ, and he wanted to affirm them. I would suggest to you that it's clear that believing women had a prominent places of ministry and service within the local church. We may not always be as clear as we would like to be. However, we continue to look at the totality of scripture and wrestle with how we apply what we know being guided by the Holy Spirit. And here's, here's, here's where I, I will leave us today in this consideration. because I have to be honest and say I can't answer all the questions of how that looks in the local body of Christ. But I do think that there is a place where the church needs to, and I'm talking about church in general, needs to certainly affirm, come alongside, encourage, allow for women to have significant ministry within the church. That does not relinquish, if you would, the responsibility men have to be leaders and involved using their gifts within the church. I want to suggest to you, it's just something to ponder in this consideration, that maybe some of the reasons why women have ended up in places in the church that maybe aren't ordained by God, I'm gonna just use that term, is because men have failed in their responsibility to be leaders in their home and in the church. So it is, it is more than just a question of where are women to serve in the body of Christ, but where are men in your marriage, in your household, in the body of Christ? Are you fulfilling the roles God has given you? so that it by default doesn't become the role of someone else do you understand what I'm saying here this morning please give me some feedback and and I'm not saying that to affirm me I'm just saying are you understanding what I'm saying here this morning so here's the last here's the last passage and again I am I, I I I I read this with fear and trepidation because it might just say well that just that just negated everything you just said and I've wrestled with this and my friends if you think that it's as clear and cut and dry as at first appears you haven't read what other Christians who love the Word of God and have read it have said and I'm not saying that I have the final answer I'm struggling with some of this myself because I want to be consistent with the Word of God and I don't want even the interpretations of scholars or culture to be the one that determines what Scripture is really saying. Do you follow me? Though I think scholars have their place and even so does culture. Do you follow me? So please understand that. Now, this is the last passage and, and, and it is the last one. I won't go to the parallel, I'll just give it to you. But first Timothy chapter two verses eight through fifteen. First Timothy two verses eight through fifteen. Verse eight says, I desire that in every place that men should lift should should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarrelling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, again, without giving us all the historical background of this and delving into the text in detail, there obviously was a problem that Paul was addressing and giving instruction through Timothy. After all, First and Second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral letters because they were written to men who were in the church who were then to give pastoral guidance and counsel to the body of Christ. Now here's where, where, where you, it gets sticky. Verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and in love and in holiness with self-control. Wow, there's a lot there. Would you agree? There's a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 26 through 40 that speak about keeping silent within the church. Now, this can't mean that a woman can never speak in church. Can't mean that. Even scripture would, would, would be inconsistent if that were true because 1 Corinthians 11.5 talk about women prophesying in the context of the church. So it's not an, it's not an absolute rule, but there has to be uh, some significance to that. Can I, can I at least suggest to us this morning some things that were possibilities in and, and maybe understanding this? It is possible that the freedom women came to have by believing in Jesus Christ and being part of the church when they were gathered resulted in some of them having many questions in the context of the the church assembled. Because after all this was new. One one of the things that that I thought of, and I I just thought, where did this arrive from? Did you know that in the temple complex, because this is coming out of the context of Judaism, that they had a court of women that was part of the temple complex? I just finished reading about the, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Did you know that the tabernacle did not call for any court of women that I'm aware of? So where did that come from? Because if you look at the way the temple was set up, you had the, the holy place and the holy of holies where that was where the priests had, did their ministry and their work in the temple. But then you had the court of the Jewish men that was a little bit closer to that, to that uh, temple complex. And then you had the court of the women that was off to the side. And then way off to the side was the court of the Gentiles. Now wait a minute. Did God prescribe all those different divisions within the church? Or, or I should say the temple in that day, where did that arise? I would suggest to you that maybe a lot of that was cultural. And it's things that came into the temple complex that God never gave prescriptions about that, but in their understanding of things, they created these sort of distinctions and barriers and sections, and you can't go past this. In fact, the Gentile, at that section where the Gentile section ended, said that if a Gentile passes and crosses this line, there's death. And you will recall that that Jesus said, My house shall be known as a house of prayer for all the nations. And yet they were pushed off to the side because maybe a mishandling and misunderstanding of what God had taught. So now you come into the New Testament context where, remember, this was not in the synagogue that the church was gathering. The church was gathering in homes. And it's a little less formal. And maybe the possibility was that Paul is addressing here in these contexts is that because men and women were now together and for some of these women this was the first time they're hearing these things that they're constantly asking questions in the middle of a teaching. It would be very disruptive here this morning whether it's a man or a woman that stop me in the middle of the message and say, "Ah, yeah, but what about, oh hey, what about this? Oh, wait a minute. How am I supposed to bring a message if I'm constantly being interrupted. So Paul may be giving this exhortation to say, if you have questions, save them for when you get home and maybe your husband can help explain them to you. Do you follow me? Uh, 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 another uh, possibility, uh, because of this, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 50, that Paul is trying to st- establish uh, orderliness in the church. And without getting too deep into this, you'll recall that Paul says earlier in Corinthians that when, when a prophecy is given, that, that others should evaluate that prophecy. Was this really a word from God or did somebody just sort of say something off the cuff? Maybe there's the possibility that when he said that the women are silent, that maybe he was restricting in that particular context the evaluation of whether this is doctrine or not to leave it to the elders of the church or the men that were present. Do you follow me? I don't think you follow me. Okay. Do you see, do you see where maybe, maybe he's trying to rein in that the women were now giving their stamp of approval on a prophetic word that was heard and that was to be relegated to the elders who are responsible for the protection of the flock when it comes to doctrine you follow me so that's another possibility you say okay well then what is it well this is the last message in this series for now and you can go back and study the scripture along with me and hopefully, maybe we can come to some understandings of some of these things. But I, but I want to say this. There are other factors that relate possibly to the limitations that are found in Scripture, and how these are to be understood and applied requires more diligent, prayerful study of the Word of God. And let me just suggest that in this process, let us, like our Lord Jesus, affirm believing women to the purpose that Christ has called them so that they will pursue Christ and serve Him as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, both in the life of the church and in life as a whole. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I know that considerations of your word this morning require a lot of prayerful thought as to how some of these scriptures are to be understood and applied. And I know, Heavenly Father, that I have not necessarily answered every question that we as a, a body of believers might have in regard to where believing women serve within the body of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will please help me to continue to study your word and to have more clarity on these matters. I pray for this congregation that we will continue to study your word, to wrestle with some of these texts and to come to to an understanding Lord, of how we live according to your word in these days. We've already seen, Father, that in leadership within the church, whether it relates to men or women, that the church is supposed to be a a display of the wisdom of God. Forgive us, Father, that our own limitations and, and other things that we've introduced into your church at times sort of cloud that wisdom and don't allow it to be seen because maybe we're not applying your word uh, as thoroughly as we should. Father, help us in the considerations of these topics to pursue Christ and above all else to want to please him, whether that be in the context of, of the church body or whether that be in our individual lives. And Father, for saving us, Lord, we give you thanks for making us your very own and being your people. Thank you. May we seek to honor and glorify you in all things. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.